0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to the African American Studies channel on the New Books Network. My name is Brittany Edmonds and I'm very happy to introduce Professor Habiba Ibrahim, who will be our guest for today. Professor Habiba Ibrahim is an associate professor of English at the University of Washington in Seattle. Her scholarship is in African American Literary Studies of the 20th and 21st centuries. Her work closely examines literary texts in order to consider how fictional and non-fictional narratives treat emergent forms of thought and social contradictions during the moment of their production. Her work demonstrates how narratives of the black imagination depict nascent, disavowed and underthought ways of knowing and being that are frequently escaped familiar understandings of contemporary life at stake in her research is an account of how and why present day categories, values, and cultural formations come into being. By providing such an account through examinations of social forms and the historicity of the contemporary, her research contributes to history, black studies, feminist studies, and to literary studies in English. Thank you for being here today, Professor Ibrahim.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be in conversation with you.
1: Excellent. Well, let's get started. So my first question is just for you to give readers, you know, maybe listeners who haven't had a chance to pick up your book yet. Can you give us a short description of the book and maybe talk a bit about how you arrived at the topic?
0: Yes, thank you. So my arrival at the topic was um, in some ways related to Observations I was making right after I finished my first book. Um, It was in relationship to Obama's administration. And I was just observing what seemed to me like a kind of um, persistent, yet, um, you know, unusual aspect of. Obama's presidency, which was the use or the sort of um, r- referring to Black or the the use of Black women in an iconic way to signify the arrival of a particular form of personhood and a particular uh, promise of Black citizenship. So the end of my first book deals with the figure of Anne Dixon Cooper that he refers to in his victory speech in 2008. And the, the story around her has to do with her very long-lived life. She's 106 years old. And ultimately, the fulfillment of deferred freedom culminates in her capacity to vote for the first Black president, right? And so in a sense, I just had this kind of casual preoccupation with the way that black women, at least for Obama, had a sort of symbolic symbolic force with regard to a particular capacity to signify the arrival of full personhood, the arrival of full citizenship, the arrival of full humanity for black people. Right. It wasn't necessarily rooted in his own masculinity or his own status as president. It was you know, iconically, you know, sort of congealed in this figure of aged black womanhood. So I was really interested in why black women had this particular symbolic labor um, with regard to conveying history for the nation, for everybody, right? And so while I was thinking about that, again, in a really casual kind of way, I didn't plan to write about the Obama presidency. Uh, That wasn't anything close to uh, you know my um, my goals but you know what had happened in the midst of my thinking about that question about elderly black women and the sort of symbolic labor that they pr- provide was the killing of Trayvon Martin in 2012 And so what seemed to me, like an inflection point was structured around at once the kind of end of a particular era in which we were invited to think about the fulfillment of black citizenship and black personhood and black humanity in what had been called the post-racial era, right? And the post-racial was supposed to signify the end of a particular trajectory, a liberatory trajectory. And the beginning of another era in which those who were, you know, neutrally, just in a kind of um, objective sense, worthy of protection, were being killed in the streets, right? So in a sense, the new kind of moment was one that became conspicuous to me because of the way that it arose as a result of this pervasive question, which is, why aren't Black children seen as children? It was a kind of observation that was being made very collectively in social media, in, you know, very news outlets, this observation that Black children are denied a childhood, are not perceived as being children, are not granted as a result the protections that children are legally and customarily provided. And so I kind of was in this space or thinking through this space when we reached the end of an era of, you know, so-called fulfillment, right? And the beginning of another where all of the vulnerabilities of Black life are laid bare by virtue of, you know, the symbolic, you know, uh, non-protection of black children in particular, and the way we can't see childhood, and so as a result of this inflection point, I really started to think about this question of what age does to allow us to see such social contradictions. So, you know, how exactly is age at the site of blackness constructed in particular ways? Another way of thinking about that, and another way that I was thinking about that when I thought about this. Uh, this project and its very uh, inception was, if Black children aren't being seen as children, when are Black people just in general seen in normative ways when it comes to age? Which is to say, when is Black adulthood seen as a normative mode of adulthood, for instance, right? that question kind of asks us to think about what adulthood means. It's not a neutral category. It's something that's been endowed with the logic of social and political and economic presumptions that come out of a very long history. And so in this book, I kind of wanted to explore what exactly is revealed when we focus at the intersection of blackness and age and gender what it means for Black subjects to be constituted through a long history of racial capitalist violence, how exactly is that history still embedded in the way that we perceive Black embodiment? And so I was thinking of age as a way of thinking about that particular process and its afterlife in the current moment. So so I I start with this question that I didn't really know was going to be a part of a book, you know, how are black women seen as the conveyors of history, right? Um how are black children not seen as children? How are black adults somehow adults in a non-normative way or not adults, right? How are how is blackness in some ways unaged? And so that's kind of the 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 real question I have in this book is what does it mean to think about black age as unaged or as untimely as I I refer to it in the book. I draw from Hortense Spillers, Mama's Baby, Papa's Maybe, an American Grammar book, an essay, a very influential influential essay that she publishes in 1987, to draw from her thinking about ungendering the way that Black, the Black body has been ungendered at the site of the Atlantic Ocean as a result of the transatlantic slave trade, by virtue of the violences that occur in transport, to sort of think about how that site is also useful for thinking about a process of an aging, a process in which the Black body is reduced to flesh, which is not only ungendered, but also untimely. And as a result of that process of being both ungendered and unaged or made untimely, there's a kind of undoing that then makes Black embodiment a kind of screen for the projection of an array of fantasies and ideologies that shore up racial capitalism in varying ways. And so in some ways, this book is really about, you know, that kind of um, undoing, that kind of projection of varying racialist fantasies, but also about a reclamation that occurs in Black life and, in, you know, specifically in the Black literary imagination. Not only is something undone, but something is also being reclaimed. And I wanted to think about those two things, the violence and the reclamation as being in struggle, in contention with each other and what that, you know, sort of struggle, you know, ultimately amounts to.
1: That's excellent. I mean, that's a, that's a very rich answer to get us started. Um, And I, I'm, We definitely have time to sort of unpack that as the episode goes on. I want to make sure that I draw out the title of your first book, just for listeners who may not know it. So Professor Ibrahim's first book is entitled Troubling the Family, The Promise of Personhood and the Rise of Multiracialism. And I want to remind listeners that today we're talking about Black age, oceanic lifespans and the time of Black life. And so that very rich um, response to this first question, which we will be unpacking over the course of the episode, you know, got me thinking about, you know, the ways in which you point out over the course of your monograph, the queer relationship that Black people have to normative time and to agedness. And something that preoccupied me and something that was very sort of present in the answer that you just gave was a sort of attention to gender and sort of gendered embodiment. And I wonder if you can say a bit about gender and the work that it does in this project.
0: Oh, thank you for asking that, Brittany. I appreciate it because it's really central to how I'm thinking about the potential for seeing age as an analytical term. You know, in Black studies, you know, Black literary studies and Black cultural studies, gender has often been seen as a really important social category for thinking about the terms of how we imagine uh, liberation, how we imagine sociality, how we imagine Uh, varying forms of belonging and uh, being, right? And knowing. And so in that sense, you know, Black gender has been um, really important in a theoretical and philosophical uh, sense in terms of imagining the conditions of Black life. I want to sort of begin with how gender is also... Endowed with a logic of time, and by you know, kind of drawing our attention to that, I, I'm you know very well aware that I'm treading on very you know well trodden ground with regard to age studies and with regard to the work that um, you know 19th centuryists have uh, you know sort of laid in terms of thinking about. You know, the conditions under which white women, for instance, aren't um, granted the same kinds of, um, you know, protections and privileges and obligations of male adulthood. Right. So in that sense, you know, I don't purport to be, um, you know, kind of inventing a new grammar about the, you know, the sort of. uh, the distinction between how, you know, particular gendered categories, you know, kind of fall into different schedules of legal protections or legal rights, etc. However, gender becomes important because it, in some ways, obscures the way in which age itself has a capacity to reveal particular racialized histories, particular forms of struggle, and particular potentials for liberation. And so I kind of want to think of, you know, almost like a Mobius strip. If you kind of think about gender as being the outside, right, the, the kind the side that you kind of see, and then underneath it is age. I kind of want to flip it so that we're looking at age as the primary social category through which we do our theorizing without doing away with gender. So, in that sense, I'm interested in Black feminist thought of the 1970s, p- particularly the Kumbahi River Collective, and you know, more specifically, the Kumbahi River Collective statement. And The theorizing that comes out of the academy during the 1980s. I feel that Hortense Spillers is part of a cohort of Black feminist thinkers who are thinking about gender as an analytic for reimagining an alternative history of Western modernity. So In that sense, gender is important insofar as it gives us a kind of analytical tool for revisiting, for instance, the transatlantic slave trade and imagining what exactly occurred by virtue of transport across the Atlantic Ocean that then leads to a different kind of subjectivity, right, that has implications for the way we think about Black gender and ungendering, right, Black gender as ungendered. I also kind of want to you know, go back to the thinking of Black theorists, Black feminist theorists of the 70s and 80s to think about how they were all so concerned with this question of age. And so to my mind, it's not an accident, it's not inconsequential that Toni Morrison writes a novel about Black girlhood in 1970, right? I mean, or publishes this novel that, Black girlhood is a gendered category, but it's also an aged category, right? And in so being, the way in which Black girlhood is aged gives us a way of thinking about how that particular way of being a subject opens up a possibility that is foreclosed if we're only forced to think about the liberal subject par excellence who is generally white and male and adult, right? And so I kind of want to think about these moments where, you know, Michelle Wallace writes in an essay that's included in all the, I'm going to botch the title, unfortunately, right? All the uh, women are white, all the Blacks are men, but some of us are brave. And, you know, she's describing that game that she and her sister play, where they tie scarves to their braids to sort of, you know, um, you know append their embodiment with femininity, right? That in a sense, it's that idea of, you know, it's the idea of long hair, but it's also the idea of whiteness. and it's also the idea of being, in some ways, um, connected, to a trajectory in which black girlhood is almost foreclosed from. If the question is, if all the women are white, what does it mean to grow into womanhood? Which is to say, what does it mean to grow into adult femininity if you're black, right? What does adulthood mean for black women? So in a sense, I was interested in thinking about how gender gives us an opportunity to think about an alter a, com- a companion analytic that does a kind of work that's been under uh you know, underexplored. What if we were to first think of age in addition to gender? And what would we be able to see about social life, about our subjective, our subjective ways of being and knowing, about The history of Western modernity if we first focus on age without abandoning gender. And so in that sense, I kind of think that age gives us a way of thinking about that ungendered component in ways that are capacious enough for us to ask perhaps new questions.
1: Um, Yeah. Yeah, I love that response. And I love the idea of this monograph of Black age as giving us you know, another concept, another analytic um, with which to rewrite, you know, the history of Western modernity, right? Another sort of vantage point to sort of look at Western modernity and to sort of critique some of the categories that it's given us. Um, I also think it's interesting that how you're using it to sort of theorize Black life and Black lifespans. And so I just think, I think it's great that you've identified age itself and Black age, especially as sort of you're elevating that to the space of an analytic. So I wanna kind of back out just a bit. And I'm curious if you could tell us about the monograph. So you already talked about Toni Morrison a bit, but excuse me, an epigraph. There's an epigraph that opens your book and it reads, as the original locus of the human race, Africa is ancient, yet being under colonial control, it is also infantile, a kind of old fetus always waiting to be born, but confounding all midwives. Now, you've spoken a bit about this, about sort of age as a concept, how it relates to Western modernity. Um, But I'm curious if you could just say a bit more about this quotation as a framing device for your book.
0: So I wanted to start there because I think that Morrison is pointing to a phenomenon in The Foreigner's Home that we know very well, right? That in a sense, when we think about the idea of Africa or the Africanist presence, as she writes about really fully in Playing in the Dark, we have this sense of a kind of absent space, a space that exists geographically, but is also empty of actual sociality or history. It's kind of this idea of a geopolitical space without the kind of details that flesh out geopolitical spaces. And so I think that the way that she's thinking about Africa in this way, as being kind of emptied of particularity, of actual history, of actual people, as being, in a sense, a fantasy, right, as being a kind of projection of particular Western ideologies, is precisely what the Black body is, right? So if the Black body has been emptied of a kind of aging logic or a kind of gendered logic, then we can think about how she's talking about Africa as this fantasy in a way that's suitable or appropriate or perhaps useful for thinking about the Black body. So Insofar as Africa is that space that has no history, right, that dark continent from which we, um, you know, understand uh, differentiation between the underdeveloped and the developed world, that idea of development, which has been a really familiar one since the time of the Enlightenment, right, since the ways in which we think about the, uh, you know, kind of distinctions across the globe that separate human beings is one that's applicable at the level of actual bodies, right? So Africa is being both aged, right? It's the birth of the human race and being infantile insofar as it is support, you know, purportedly underdeveloped, right? Not that it's been underdeveloped intentionally, but that it's just somehow naturally, evolutionarily, biologically, socially, historically, underdeveloped, in that way, infantile, right? Is a way of thinking about how these logics about development have been applicable to geopolitical discourses, but also to the discourses of embodiment and the way in which we think of ourselves in social life. And so I wanted to draw that connection that these fantasies have shaped the Western modern world in ways that are profound and large and familiar, so familiar that we may not even really think about them because they're so familiar, they're so naturalized. But when you kind of think about how that conception of Africa is so familiar to us, what if you then took that and then applied it to that question that, you know, I kind of asked in the beginning, why aren't black children seen as black children? There's a kind of fantasy at play there, right? Where does that fantasy come from? You can draw a line from Hegel to Trayvon if you follow that sort of thinking. So in a sense, I kind of wanted to make those kinds of connections in this book, questions that have to do with from whence our understanding of development and then, you know, therefore our understanding of maturity, of adulthood, of childhood, of what it means to be a man, right? Which is usually associated with adulthood. What it means to be a woman, which in some ways is never quite, although aspirationally connected to this idea of adulthood, right? If we sort of think about these questions of development and what it means to be at the top of a hierarchy of some achieved level of development, then we'd have to begin to think about where these ideas come from and how they manifest in the present in you know perhaps unexpected ways
1: yeah you know another very rich answer i was really struck you know when i was reading your introduction by your ability to take like you said sort of ideas concepts sort of social knowledge that we have to take it and sort of illuminate it critically and so what you've done with that that epigraph is is a really great example. Like I really love how you how you drew out development as a sort of key concept that's really influencing all these arenas of human activity, but also our ability to comment on those arenas sort of intellectually. And so that's a really rich part of your book as well, which we're going to get into. Um, But I just wanted to point that out, like while I was reading your books, especially, you know, I remember I was sort of very early in it, you know, I hit like where you were talking about these idiomatic phrases or these sort of common ways we have of talking about black life. And I was like, Yeah, that's true. And I've never thought about that critically. So like black don't crack, this idea of black children as adults, this idea that black adults are infantile. And so I just wanted to really draw out that you have just incredible talent for taking what seemed to us as kind of just sort of idiomatic forms of knowledge and saying, well, actually, there's this long history um, that's tied to the development of Western thought. And it all hinges on the idea of development. So just to pivot away from there, I wonder if you could tell us a bit about the concept of the oceanic. It shows up in the title of your book, and it also seems central to your theorizing about Black age. And so you talk about the Atlantic Ocean as an alternate cradle of modernity, and I wonder if you could just tell our listeners a bit more about how the oceanic allows you to sort of differently theorize Black subjectivity and also narratives of modernity, and then also finally, of course, Black age.
0: Mm, Thank you. Yeah. So the oceanic is a concept um, that I really wanted to um, sort of draw from in my, you know, kind of engagement with Horton Spillers' work. And so when Spillers is talking about being in the oceanic in Mama's Baby, Papa's Maybe, you know, she's referring to what it's like for human beings, having been taken from a social context, transformed from human beings into cargo in the slave ship, and then suspended in the ocean, right? And so in that sense, she's referring to this very specific historical condition in relationship to Sigmund Freud's concept of the oceanic feeling. When Freud is speaking about the oceanic feeling, Freud is referring to this kind of sense of religiosity that is present in the adult that's normal, right? The healthy, normal adult that nonetheless defies what characterizes um, the psychic life of normative adults, which is to say, having a strong sense of ego or individuation. So Spillers is referring, I mean, there are layers and layers, right? Spillers is referring to Freud when she's referring to the oceanic, right? That these bodies transformed into cargo in transit are undifferentiated in the same way that Someone who has this oceanic feeling of religiosity, of being connected to others in a way that does away with the ego, right? That to have this sense of being connected to others and to a a presence that's outside of you, right? Like God to be connected to this idea of um, something that's not you, right? Is for Freud this kind of a problem, right? It's a, it's What does it mean to be a healthy adult with a healthy ego and at the same time to have this feeling of non-differentiation, right? The, the problem or the reason why it emerges as a problem for him is because to be non-differentiated in that way, to be connected to others is infantile, right? The non-differentiation of the oceanic feeling is connected to this pre-ego stage of the infant being non-differentiated from the mother. So in Freud, that manifests in the mother's breast, right? The child gets its needs met by the figure of the mother and doesn't really know that there's a difference between it and this other figure, right? The child feels a kind of non-differentiated connection to the mother, right? and to the mother's body. And so because Freud is thinking about the oceanic feeling in terms of a kind of scale of development, right? That how is it that the normative adult with a healthy, strong, individuated ego can feel non-connected, suggests that that feeling of of non-differentiation is not only you know, infantile, but is also racialized as a result of being infantile. Which is to say that Freud is drawing from a logic of evolution in which human beings are ordered according to a hierarchy of development. And so in that sense, to be non-differentiated, to have this sense of connection to others, right? and to be infantile as a result of that is also on a lower frequency to think about being racialized in a way that the Western European man isn't, right? So Spillers, I mean, I'm going back and forth because what she does is complicated. And so my thinking about it is forced to be as complicated as she demands that it is, right? To be in the non-differentiated space of the oceanic as cargo, in some ways draws us to this logic of being unaged insofar as one is forced to reckon with this idea of being non-differentiated and potentially adult, right? So like in a sense, if you're in that space of non-differentiation and you're thinking along with Freud, right? That forecloses the possibility of adulthood And so that undoing that I describe as unaging, right, in addition to being ungendered, I think carries this connotation of unaging as thinking about this foreclosure of a particular idea of what it is to be an adult, an individuated ego, or in a kind of liberal humanist vein, an individual who's capable of being a citizen having rights, being able to act individually and autonomously, being able to own property, all of the ways in which we think about the way an adult is is sort of a, a socially, you know, sort of legible concept has to do with individuation, right? That adulthood is individuated. So to make this for, you know, this is very, you know, I hope this is, you know, clear, but in a sense, I go to the oceanic to open up what is, I think, an embedded problem. What does it mean not only to be in the Atlantic Ocean in a slave ship, but then also to be undone as a human being, right? As cargo? undone as a result of being so, socially separated and thus unaged, but then also to be undifferentiated in the sense that you now, having been unaged, are no longer connected to this normative idea of adulthood. As cargo, you're connected to other cargo. You're actually chained to other cargo, right? You're actually stowed with other cargo. You're non-differentiated in far as you don't have the capacity to fulfill the standards of normative adulthood or normative, you know, sort of uh, human being. What then would an alternative version of adulthood look like in that context? And so I go to the Oceanic to raise that question. What exactly happened with regard to unmaking not just human beings, not just gender, but also time? how does the Black subject coming from that particular, you know, point of history become understandable, legible as a particular version of adult that we associate with normative adulthood? It's a very similar question. In fact, I think it's a a question I don't want to separate from the question of gender in Spillers. That question is once gender is ungendered, how then do we think about Black subjectivity through the concept of gender? You would have to think about gender differently. And I think that that's exactly what happens with age. You have to think about age as that which was, at least at the side of the Black body, transformed into something that no longer is attached to the normative developmental psychical understandings that for instance, Freudian psychoanalysis gives us for thinking about adulthood. And then Freud is really just a kind of stand-in for other modes of Western modern thought when it comes to what constitutes the human subject, right? Or the healthy human subject. And so, yeah.
1: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? You know, I'm curious about an example. I want to return to an example you brought up uh, in response to the first question, the sort of, you know, the woman who was 106 years old and sort of was rhetorically deployed as a confirmation of like the success of U.S. democracy. Um, I'm curious about, you know, you say black people are sort of unaged, right? And that's just a condition that they exist in. Um, given the conditions of of, of Western modernity. I'm curious about these sort of rhetorical deployments of Black people um, as a source of of confirmation for modernity then. And I'm curious if if there's a way to sort of read that instance where uh, sort of Obama is sort of rhetorically employing this woman to do certain kinds of national work, nation work, if, there, if, if Black age gives us a way to sort of read it against the grain or a different way to understand that moment. Um, just because as you were speaking, I was curious about, you know, then how we understand sort of Black movement between what might be read as sort of normative time, right? Their ability to sort of enter into the sort of time of, of, of liberal humanism, but also their ability to exit it, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm just sort of curious if you could talk to us a bit of maybe about, you know, movement, movement between these different forms of time, these different ways of relating to time.
0: Oh, good. Yes. I thank you. That framing of the question is, is a rich one, because I think about um, violence and reclamation, but you're reframing it to think about movement between modes of normativity and non-normativity. And I think that that's a really helpful way of framing a uh, you know, what I attempt to explore in this book. I think that, you know, to be a kind of icon of, you know, national democratic success in some ways is to be in the space of normative belonging, right? Um, I, I think an example that I uh, write about in in the book, in, in Black Age, um, that has to do with Joyce Heth might be a, a good way to sort of enter into the question. You know, because Joyce Heth was um, a subject that P.T. Barnum exhibited in 1835 to 1836. And the exhibition had to do with what he described as the nursemaid of Father of our country, George Washington. She was purported to be 161 years old, and she was able to regale audiences with stories about George Washington when he was a young boy, right? Because he, she was supposedly his nursemaid, right? So audiences would gather to hear these stories about not just a revered, you know, particularly revered in the 1830s, revered figure of the birth of the US nation but also to kind of, you know, sort of revel in a sort of nostalgia about what the nation had been. And so the idea of this aged woman being able to literally deliver stories about the beginning of national, um, you know, establishment in the U.S. context is a kind of way of thinking about Joyce Heth, who was you know, a slave, as belonging to a kind of national um, context in what might seem like a normative sense, right? She's given a sort of public role, which of course was unusual for an enslaved Black woman, to speak to white audiences, which was unusual for an enslaved Black woman, to speak about the conditions of the country, right? And of course, these were stories that had to do with a particular revered historical figure, right? Her value comes from her proximity to George Washington, but it also has to do with the way that she was supposedly able to give white audiences an unmediated connection to the past, right? Wouldn't it be, you know, just a marvel if we could all experience the historical past through the words of a living person who lived it, right? Without the sense of mediation. So I think of Joyce Heth in that particular exhibition, of course it was a lie, right? She wasn't 161 years old. Um, She wasn't George Washington's nursemaid. That was all a kind of, you know, made up fantasy to allow white audiences to delve into the fantasies that they found fulfilling and enjoyable. But nonetheless, that was her route into a normative historiography, right? By being the subject who has proximity to something that is understandable as history by virtue of servitude is how she enters into the normative frame of history. So she enters this frame even if it's not by actual fact, by, you know, this sort of really contrived uh, narrative, she becomes someone who enters the national stage by virtue of being able to provide labor. And in that sense, telling these stories about when George Washington was a little boy and the sort of psalms he liked to hear and the ways that she kind of, you know, all of these things had to do With her providing labor, not just to this fictional version of a child, George Washington, but also to the audiences who went to listen to these stories, right? So I guess one way of saying that there's a kind of labor involved in being wrapped into the fold of a normative national story through age It's not as if they would come, I mean, like they were coming because she was doing something for them, right? And she literally was doing something in the context of this exhibition. She was working, right? And so in that sense, I think that we have to think about it under what conditions does a Black subject become legible in the context of U.S. national history, right? I think the Obama administration, again, I, I don't want to belabor that because I actually don't write about it in this book. It just became this the kind of um, pretext, you know, in some ways for, for the conditions under which this book was written. But to think about what it means for a Black subject to be legible in public as a subject worthy of historical consideration has to do with a kind of labor that attends to what age allows that person to do right so black women purportedly become important when they can deliver us right when i say us i mean the us national you know sort of citizenry the audience for a historiography of a, of a history that's oral and written when that subject gives to us a version of a past that we would have no access to without her presence is when her age and being and presence become valuable. And so I kind of wanted to focus in some ways on that question. I mean, I focus on it differently when it comes to uh, Devonte Hart, that boy who became famous as a result of a viral photograph that was circulated in 2014, in a photo that was named by the media, the hug shared around the world, right? So it's this, a black, the the photo depicts a black boy who is hugging an officer at a rally in Portland. This is around the time of Michael Brown's uh, murder, right? And it's, part of that moment of uprising as a response. And this tearful boy is being hugged by this officer who is wearing a helmet. The shield is is like pushed up so you can see his face, but nonetheless, he's wearing a uniform. And so, you know, in relation to Joyce Heth, you might think how did Devante Hart become visible to us, right, he entered the frame of our consciousness as a result of doing a kind of work for us, right? He was the forgiving black subject who could enter the embrace of a police officer by proxy, the state by proxy, a kind of narrative of white innocence. And so in that sense, I kind of read Devante, not as being, you know, sort of legible to us as a black boy who in his own right is deserving of protection and concern, but as a, Black subject who could be of any age that's asked to do a particular kind of labor for a U.S. population, a U.S. public that entails a a telling of a story about the nation itself. And so that photo in some ways kind of becomes the redemptive, um, you know, photo negative of what actually happens between Michael Brown and, you know, the officer who kills him, right? I mean, in a sense, it becomes a a kind of revision of that. And so I kind of think of age as that way of uh, that sort of analytical term that allows us to sort of see these moments of how exactly labor is carried out, what the conditions of that labor is, and how it then allows us to think we're seeing Black subjectivity or Black embodiment, when in fact what we're seeing is the outcome of a kind of Black labor. And so... Yeah, that's kind of how I see this sort of moving between normativity and non-normativity is that in a sense, both Joyce Heth and Devante Hart seemed like they were included, right? I mean, normativity in some ways when it comes to to Blackness is about inclusion, right? Right. If you're included in particular spaces, if you're included in particular narratives, then you can be included in particular versions of normative time. But that inclusion came with the conditions of being exceptional, of being exceptionally able to provide a labor that in some ways was inhuman. No one was 161 years old, right? I mean, so at any rate, that's kind of how I think about that question in this book.
1: Yeah, no, that's a that's a great um, answer, as you were speaking about uh, the non-normativity of Black age and how it becomes serviceable to liberal humanism, you know, a bunch of different images were were flashing through my mind. Like one of the things that always annoys me is how uh, on the cover of Uncle Tom's Cabin, like Uncle Tom is always figured as a very old man, but he's not a very old man in the book. Mm. Um, And then I thought about, you know, little Annie dancing alongside a grown man. Then my mind flashed to Uncle Ben, you know, it's just like, just thinking about sort of always um, the non-normativity of Black age, sort of being in service of a kind of white innocence and a kind of liberal humanist project. I thought that was a, a wonderful. and You just had me it just set my mind off in a bunch of different directions. Um, but just because you know time is time is dwindling. There's a couple of things that I wanted to make sure we have a chance to talk about. One of them, one of the things I was sort of fascinated by. Is how you're fitting this book into ongoing conversations in black studies um and in black literary studies in particular? and so I wonder if you could say just a little bit about you know sort of how this concept of of black age is allowing you to in some degree to 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 reframe black literary histo- historiographies that we think we already know um, yeah mm.
0: yes, thank you for that. Um, Insofar as I think that we are very well familiar with the analytic of gender, I think that when we think of Black literary studies, we often think about how gender becomes, um, you know, especially if we think about the, the growth of Black literary um, studies and with it, the growth of particular frameworks for reading Black literature, right, that developed from the 1970s into the 1980s, that varying theoretical frameworks become applicable to the reading of Black literature in new ways as Black studies, you know, sort of becomes established and grows in the academy. And so with that, with that sort of development of Black literary studies as an academic disciplinary space is a kind of development with the ways in which we read Black literature. And so I think that gender has been really an important part of the development of how we've read Black literature through varying theoretical frames. And so... In that sense, I, I, I want to track that, right? Track the way that Black feminist theory became an important part of the development of Black studies in the 1980s, right? It becomes a kind of, you know, in some ways, a dominant frame that leads us to think about not just gender, but all, or patriarchy or the ways in which we can kind of imagine the afterlife of Black nationalism in the 1980s, right, but also the way it allows us to think about queerness, right? I mean, it, Black feminist thought is queer, in you know, in a lot of ways, and that kind of gets thrown, you know, kind of, we sometimes forget that, right? And so I think that thinking about gender as part of the development that is uh, key to the reading of Black literature then allows me to think about how gender is connected to this question of age. So, you know, for instance, when we think about a text like The Incidents of the Life of a Slave Girl, right, um, 1861, we didn't know necessarily that it was an actual autobiography, right? It had the historical status of it was in question until Jean uh, Fagan Yellen's definitive uh, Harvard edition, you know, kind of establishes the veracity of it. And we, you know, know it's no longer like a, a novel, right? That it's actually an autobiography. And so I kind of think about, you know, the way that gender became a way to pivot toward this question of age. If we're thinking about this now as an autobiography about what it means to be enslaved and female, the question of girlhood becomes a real historical problem, right? I mean, how does one think about the status of girlhood in a text like that? You know, girlhood in some ways isn't present in it. Um, It's, in the title, but somehow it's in the title as a kind of implied absence. It's a it's a status that Harriet Jacobs can't quite claim, although in some biological sense, in terms of age as the number of years lived, she could have been a girl, but not socially. So in a sense, I think that the ways in which age emerged In the precondition or the preoccupations, I should say, of Black studies, or at least studies about Black texts, give us a way of thinking about well, age is always there. And age is always there because with gender, age is always a part of the history of Black formation in the New World. So, you know, in that sense, I kind of want to not. T- you know, remove age, age as a central analytic for the thinking that we do. I want to, you know, help us think about it along with age as doing its own kind of complementary work that brings us to new questions. Reading *Beloved*, right, nineteen eighty-seven, Toni Morrison's uh, award-winning novel gives us a way of thinking about time in particular ways, right? It's about, we know it very well as one about the trauma of enslavement. We know that Beloved as a figure is both the trauma that haunts all Black subjects in the aftermath of slavery, but is also literally the crawling already baby, right? But then also isn't that, right? So, I mean, in a sense, one of you know, the, the questions that I really wanted to, like, sort of really delve into and tarry with is how exactly we get these particular kinds of representations where on the one hand you have a girl who isn't a girl. She's a ghost. She's an absence. We never see Beloved's actual girlhood. She goes from being a baby who's killed in an, you know, impossible act of love to being an adult who emerges from the water. We never see the span of her girlhood. What if we took that absence seriously? It would mean that we'd have to think about Black girlhood as an actual historical problem that maybe cultural producers and theorists of the 1980s were really concerned with. So I'm trying to think of age as just another way of bringing us to revisit what we know very well you know, we all know about, you know, especially in black studies, right? We know these texts. We There's nothing I could say about Toni Morrison that would be a surprise in some ways, right? But in the sense, there's a lot we don't know because it becomes so obvious that it escapes our investigation. And that's what age, I'm hoping, helps us to address. What exactly do we don't see because we see it so often?
1: Yeah. I'm so excited for listeners to, you know, to dig into your book because I really do think this is an exciting way to just really think about things that we think that we know, you know, I teach all of those texts that you've named and just, you know, even after having, you know, gone through your monograph, just hearing you talk about it again, it just feels like these ideas are new. They, they are they're new ways, as you say, of opening up conversations that we have been having. Um, and so one thing I want us to do before we close out is I want you to say a little bit about how you structure your chapters, because I feel like in that there is a critique of, you know, sort of normative time. And I want readers and listeners to, to really hear you, um, you know, talk about that kind of what you say in the introduction is that intentional way of framing your chapters across, you know, long stretches of time, you know, and working in that way. I wonder if you could just tell us a bit about that.
0: Yeah. So the book is uh, organized across four chapters, and each chapter deals with two complementary figures that aren't human. And that's the point, in a sense, is I want to really think about how age is a, a kind of vector toward an alternative humanism, one that isn't liberal humanism, one that isn't part of you know, Western modern humanity, it's an alternative humanism that would be capacious enough to include us all. And so I divide the chapters into two, um, you know, kind of analytical figures. Um, the first being body snatcher and uh, the shapeshifter. the second being the vampire and the relic, the third being uh, the mass, right, that sense of non-differentiation and, and men, right, the differentiated fully realized subject of liberal personhood. And then the last deals with ghosts, which has its own multiplicity, but each chapter deals with uh, the way that these two figures or these figures in each chapter, um, number one, eschew how we think about gender pairs. So, you know, I wanted to kind of think about how being human um, relies on a logic of gender, right? To, to be ungendered really is to have a kind of, um, you know, external status to the human, right? That g- if the human is uh, constituted through the logic of gender pairs, to be ungendered is really to kind of be relegated outside of the realm of a normative humanism. So I wanted to think about alternative pairings that aren't easily gendered. I I wanted to think about what it means to think about an alternative humanism through alternative relations. And each chapter deals with really canonical texts in a lot of ways. I mean, the first chapter deals with Uncle Tom's Cabin, a text I wanted to get into because it's so canonical and it gives us so many types for thinking about blackness in the cultural imaginary, right? We can't think of Uncle Tom's Cabin without thinking about Uncle Tom, right? As you mentioned, that, you know, perennially aged figure who in the text is actually of prime age, right? You know, it gives us a way of thinking about Topsy and like we, all of these names conjure a, a kind of type for us, right? So I wanted to sort of return to it to open that up with regard to age. I go to, as I mentioned, uh, Joyce Heth, and the P.T. Barnum exhibition of the 1830s as another, you know, sort of textual moment for thinking about age. Um, I read that with the vampire novels of um, Octavia Butler and uh, Jules Gomez, because you know, while agedness is something that we imagine as having a kind of uh, visual legibility. What if it doesn't? Right. In the sense that if black age is something that's often thought of as that which can't really be seen, then the vampire then becomes an interesting figure for uh, kind of revealing what that sort of long agedness, but, you know, ostensible youthfulness kind of does culturally right, especially when it's reclaimed by the Black literary imagination, I think about Black manhood as that which is on the one hand, as, you know, we can sort of think about in terms of the Obama moment, right, is that which is in some ways the most aspirational version of being Black and human, right, like the Black man in a kind of um, normative sense, It's patriarchal, right? That there's a kind of patriarchal logic that is also a hierarchical logic that attends to that particular social category, right? And so with it also comes this sense of autonomy and individuation. And I wanted to think about how, you know, in a sense, masculine adulthood could be thought of without that kind of patriarchal trapping and in order to do that I go to this figure of the mass to think about the collection you know the the collectivity of masculine subjects in A Gathering of Old Men, Ernest Gaines's novel, Uh, you know to sort of think about you know what happens when elderly black men come together to exert a kind of presence and insistence on a kind of um, political agency, but also a historical agency, right? What if they decide not to be written out of history? And so, you know, I go from there into um, thinking about uh, Toni Morrison's uh, last novel, right? God Help the Child, in which she returns to the terrain of the bluest eye, right? We have a, a black girl who is reviled by her own mother, but then what we're invited to think about in that last novel is what her development actually means. She seems to succeed, unlike Piccola, but there's this question about what her growth actually is the growth of, right? And so I kind of go from, you know, thinking, I guess the, the, the kind of way of thinking about the arc of the book is to go from... Thinking about in the um, introduction, Emmett Till and Trayvon Martin, that moment that I mentioned at the top, where like suddenly the question is not about post-racialism, it's about how did Black lives, you know, in some ways get constituted through the logic of age? How did Black children lose their childhood? Emmett Till arises in 2012. 1955 commingles with 2012, right? So I start there, I go to the 19th century and then, you know, into the 20th century. And then in some ways I go into the 21st century. So it seems like there might be a linear logic, but we're never in a a timeline that's linear because the past always comes back. There's nothing about, history that really dies and I kind of wanted to while I think about contemporary texts also bring back the historical past as I can consider uh what age looks like in both its violent valences but also in its reclamation by black subjects and by the black literary imagination and so the the book ends with returning to Emmett Till and um an alternative way of reading that particular moment. And so I really just wanted to open up uh you know the possibility of thinking of age analytically so that others might not just draw from this particular work but also run with it and produce new projects with it. I think that there's so much that could possibly be said. I didn't really you know, deal with popular culture. And there's so much you could do if you're focusing on film or, you know, television shows with regard to thinking about age, right? That um, I, I hope that it's an analytic that can be taken up. I mean, I w- if I had time, I mean, if this were a different project, imagine returning to a figure like Michael Jackson and sort of uh, unpacking what exactly that performance of untimeliness implied throughout his life, you know? So at any rate, I, I kind of really wanted this to be a, um, opening gambit, something that we in Black Studies can take up and really sit with
1: and expound on. Yeah, that's excellent. That's an excellent note to end on. So thank you so much for, for being here today. I cannot wait to recommend Black age, to teach Black age, to continue to learn from Black age. And I really enjoyed our conversation today. So thank you so much.
0: Oh, thank you so much. I really enjoy talking with you, Brittany. Thank you.